Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 301. Hope you're doing well. Hope your family's doing well. Today is Wednesday, November 4th. And uh, I want to talk about the Miami Dolphins first. So if you don't know, on Sunday, the Miami Dolphins beat the LA Rams 28-17. to it was Tua Tungvaloa's first start. The Dolphins are now 4-3. and three. The Rams are 5-3. and three. And it's no secret I love Tua, the Dolphins' young rookie quarterback. But the Dolphins won because of their defense. Uh, this is a rematch from a couple years ago in the Super Bowl. If you don't know what I'm talking about, remember when the Patriots shut down the Rams in the Super Bowl? They really limited that really good Sean McVay defense. Well, the guy behind that, other than Bill Belichick, of course, was the former Patriots defensive coordinator, Brian Flores, who is now the Dolphins head coach. And so on Sunday, we got to see a rematch of Brian Flores' defense against the offense of Sean McVay. And Miami's defense dominated on Sunday. The Rams quarterback, Jared Goff, had four turnovers. He had two interceptions and two fumbles. Uh, Jared Goff's first interception gave the Dolphins great field position, led to a uh, a touchdown, his very first of his entire NFL career. It was a slant to Devontae Parker. Kind of interesting. Clearly, there was defensive pass interference, but he fitted in really well. And, uh, you know, Devontae Parker caught the slant anyway. Now, I'll be honest. I Look, I was excited. Tua, it was cool. We'll talk about Tua. I think he was pretty mundane uh, as far as a guy having his first start. But honestly, this is a, a, it was a really ugly start for both teams. As I kind of slur my words, ago. I don't know what I'm saying here. Uh, but Tua had a fumble early on in the game. Looked very nervous. Uh, and that gave the Rams the ball the 15-yard line, leading to a Rams touchdown. So Jared Goff had an early interception giving Miami points. Tua had an early fumble giving the Rams points as well. But then later there was a really, really crazy sequence where it was a tie game, 7-7. And the Dolphins running back, Miles Gaskin, fumbled deep in their own territory, like on the three-yard line. Fumbled, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a really bad start for Miami. So the Rams got the ball first and goal at the seven-yard line. Well, on second and goal, shockingly, Jared Goff got sacked. He fumbled, and the Dolphins took the ball 78 yards for a touchdown. I went, oh, well, that was unexpected. And on the very next possession, the Rams went three and out. They punted, and Miami returned the punt 88 yards for another touchdown. So Miami was up 21-7. to They had a touchdown on offense. They were kind of gifted the Rams with great field position. They had a touchdown on defense. They also had a touchdown on special teams. And it got even worse later when Jared Goff fumbled and gave the Dolphins the ball on the one-yard line. First and goal on the one-yard line. That led to another touchdown. So the Rams just handed the Dolphins opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. The Rams' offense really struggled. The turnovers really cost them. And yet Tua had a 28-7 lead, and that's cool. He technically started the game, but Tua did very little to earn that lead. The Rams kind of handed it to them. And you know I love Tua. I think Tua's amazing. I don't, I'm not trying to discredit Tua, but both times Miami's offense scored in this game, they were handed amazing field position. The 33-yard line led to Tua's touchdown, and then the one-yard line leading to the Miles Gaskins touchdown run. So the Dolphins' defense really had the Rams' number on Sunday. The Dolphins' defense is why they won this game. I think the best pe- the defensive play of the game, in my opinion, I want to give a shout-out to a Landon Roberts, a Dolphins linebacker. 
He recognized the run on one play, came in like a missile up the middle, literally took out the lead blocker and the running back in the same move. Uh, it just blew up the play. It was really, really cool. Shout out to a Landon Roberts. I went, oh my gosh, that is a crazy, crazy football play. Now, Jared Goff really, really, really struggled in this game. And I believe I've really kind of learned Jared Goff's biggest problem as a quarterback, where he's really struggling in the pocket. And the longer the play develops and the longer he holds onto the ball, the less and less comfortable he looks. And that means that, what I mean, holding onto the ball longer, meaning like without throwing the ball, he gets worse. So even like a longer play action play where he fakes the run, flips around, reverse pivots and sets up, he'll still get the ball out of his hands very, very quickly. By the time his back foot hits the ground, he's usually made a decision and is throwing the football. But what Jared Goff is not comfortable with, catches a snap, drops back, number one isn't there, the number two option isn't open, the number three option isn't open, he has to hold on the ball longer and longer and longer. And as Jared Goff is forced by defenses to hold on to the ball and work through his progressions to his third, fourth, and fifth option, he's not very good. It's just... He looks very uncomfortable in the pocket. And with Goff, I think people don't realize, I actually have some compassion here because I think people don't understand how difficult playing the quarterback position is, where I would even say, I told this to my dad once as a kid, playing quarterback is kind of like trying to do ballet while wolves are like attacking you. Meaning that you have to keep your mind calm. You're looking downfield. You're trying to make decisions. Your mind has to be relaxed and calm. And you have to do really subtle technical footwork in the pocket to stay alive while guys are literally trying to hit you and throw you to the ground and take your head off to keep your mind calm and be able to make subtle little footwork movements is really hard in that situation so it's tough and I feel for Jared Goff but it's also unfortunately a really big part of playing quarterback especially in the NFL in college in high school you have great offensive lines and you have guys wide open you can get away with it In the NFL, you catch a snap, you have to be able to navigate the pocket and move around. And as of today, uh, we're heading into week nine of the 2020 NFL season. Jared Goff is really, really struggling with navigating the pocket and hanging onto the ball and making subtle movements in the pocket. So he had two interceptions. He also had probably the Dolphins dropped two or three more interceptions. It could have been even worse for Jared Goff, plus the two fumbles. Jared Goff had a horrible, horrible day on Sunday, and the Dolphins' defense dominated. Now, Tua, he had that rather inglorious start. He had the fumble that gave the Rams a touchdown. But overall, other than that fumble, I thought Tua was fine. I thought Tua was very okay. He had a lot of deep balls that were incomplete. Uh, Miami had a couple drops, but I really liked Miami's game plan, which was to get the ball out of Tua's hands very, very quickly. A ton of throws underneath. Again, they had a lot of drops, though. I thought that there were a couple guys who I wanted to see step up vertically that did not. But there were also no outstanding, wow, shocking, impressive plays by Tua. You watch Justin Herbert week one, you went, oh, my gosh. that Physically, that's an amazing throw or an amazing run. You watch Joe Burrow and went, oh, wow. The way Joe Burrow's throwing the ball is incredible. And I love Tua. There was no moment like that for Tua in his first start. Now, it's also worth noting he didn't have to do much. Like, I'm saying he didn't do very much. He also wasn't asked to do very much, where his team had such a big lead. They said, Tua, 
you got to lead, manage the lead. We're going to run the ball a lot. We're going to run out the clock. Um, so there's not a lot of negative really about Tua to say, but there's also a lot of like, eh, he was fine. Nothing bad, nothing amazing. And really, I feel like I need to see more about Tua, and I just need more information, and we'll see how the weeks go on. Like, it's one game. We'll see where Tua's at week 16 and 17 as the year comes to a close. I am disappointed that the Rams corner Jalen Ramsey didn't play in this game. He has an unnamed illness or got an unnamed illness, not COVID apparently, where he, he I think he traveled with the team even and then got sick in the hotel room. Uh, so he did not play on Sunday. And it came out that the reason why Miami chose to start Tua at this point in the year was because they realized, hey, we have the Houston Texans first round pick in the NFL draft. The Texans are one in six. That means it's likely to be a higher draft pick. And Miami realized we have to figure out how good Tua really is so we can decide if we are going to keep him at the end of the year or if we're going to have to draft another quarterback and replace him. And when I heard that, I went, oh, you know what? That makes a lot more sense why they benched Ryan Fitzpatrick when he was doing well and the team was doing well. You know, they wanted to start the evaluation process of Tua. And I go, oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Makes total sense to me. So, you know, people said, I did, I did get feedback on this. I shared this on Instagram. And I got a message from somebody saying, well, if they wanted to see what Tua had and how good he was, why didn't Miami play Tua week one? And my answer is I think they wanted to give him some time to get ready, uh, give him kind of a fighting chance to be ready when he got his first start in the NFL. The Dolphins were never planning to start Tua week one. That was never going to happen. They had Ryan Fitzpatrick. I do think the situation has evolved now, though, where Houston has been really, really bad. And no matter how good the Dolphins do, their draft pick with Houston depends on how bad Houston does. If Houston has like a top five pick and there's like four quarterbacks available and they can get Justin Fields and Tua hasn't looked good all year, I actually think it doesn't matter how Tua does. They have to do the the they have to do the research to figure out how good Tua is and do their due diligence whether or not they need to replace Tua or keep him. It makes sense to me why they put Tua in. They want to and need to start the evaluation process, and the situation has changed because nobody could have predicted how absolutely awful the Houston Texans have been this year. At least, I, I think you could have predicted it, I guess, but that wasn't what they were counting on going into the year. Now that Houston is terrible, they have their draft pick, they got to see how good Tua is. It makes total sense to me. Now, I have two thoughts. As the Dolphins are going to go about evaluating Tua in the next, what is it, nine weeks, eight, we're week eight, so we have ten weeks left in the NFL season, so nine more games for the Dolphins. What are they, four and three? So that's, yeah, that's nine more games. Um, I have two thoughts. Number one, the Miami Dolphins, his teammates, two of his teammates love him. I've heard, I know people from Alabama, they love, they loved him at Alabama, and then on, in Miami, watch him after he throws his first touchdown pass in the NFL. They all were like, yes, they were excited. They, they clearly love their quarterback, Tua. Now, number two, I am confident in Tua. Here's why. There's a great play that nobody else in the world is going to talk about that Tua made on Sunday. It was a simple throw for nine yards underneath. And I looked at that and I went, oh, boy. Tua has the mental processing capability to play the NFL quarterback position at a high level. 
At least, at the very least, he's a lot better than a lot of other young, especially rookie quarterbacks. So the Rams, it was a an empty set for the Dolphins. The Rams decided to blitz, and Tua was calm, no panic. He knew exactly what to do with the ball. He had a plan. He beat the blitz with a throw. And this is a huge, huge thing that all young quarterbacks need to figure out. Young quarterbacks always need to have a plan against the blitz. Tua did, and I went, oh, wow. that's so." Daniel Jones often has not been prepared for the blitz. There's a lot of other quarterbacks. Daniel Jones isn't even a good example. Sam Darnold. Um, I'm trying to think. Drew Locke regularly doesn't look prepared to deal with the blitz. I, I really, even Justin Herbert at times, doesn't look prepared to deal with the blitz. Now, Justin Herbert's an incredible athlete. He makes up for it. But Tua, I think, mentally is a lot farther ahead than anybody realizes. I think Tua is a, his processing power as a quarterback is phenomenal. I just want to see him start landing deeper and better throws downfield. And uh, he may never wow. He's, you know, I talked to Brett Coleman going into the year. He, his evaluation of Tua is basically that Tua is a system quarterback. He's going to be efficient and quality and you know, execute things the right way. He may never be making a 60-yard run that Justin Herbert can make, and that's okay. Tua's job is to win football games. He's got one win down. And uh, time will tell, but I'm very, very confident in Tua Tungvaloa as the rest of the year goes on. That play for me was a big indicator. Okay, Tua knows how to deal with a blitz. He's got a plan. Pre-snap, Tua's doing good things. And that makes me feel very, very good as someone who I, I am not ashamed to say I'm rooting for Tua. I want to see Tua do well. Uh, I'm not a Dolphins fan. I don't care about the Dolphins. I just really like Tua. And I love when young quarterbacks are successful. All right, let's now shift gears to NFL Week 8. So in Week 8 of the NFL season, the Pittsburgh Steelers beat the Baltimore Ravens 28-24. to After the win, Pittsburgh is now 7-0, and and the Ravens are 5-2. and Now, the biggest takeaway from this game is that the Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson, is still finding his identity as a quarterback. The Ravens lost by four points, by the way, on a day where Lamar Jackson had four turnovers, two interceptions and two fumbles. It's a big deal. And I know this is going to be kind of crazy. It's going to make people mad. I don't mind it. It's what I really believe is that I think Lamar Jackson is right on the edge and right on the fringe of becoming an elite quarterback, breaking through and becoming what I would call an elite NFL quarterback. And, I mean, Lamar made some great throws in this game, great plays, in fact, in general. He had a corner out for a touchdown to Miles Boykin. Great ball to the left corner. He had a throw for a touchdown rolling right on the goal line uh, to Marquise Brown. That's a smart play call. I love any time you get Lamar Jackson outside of the pocket, on the perimeter, on the goal line, because what it does is the defense has to go, well, we got to worry about the routes behind us in the pass, but if we leave too much room to defend the pass, Lamar Jackson's going to take off and run for a touchdown. And so you have to worry about Lamar running. And it's a hard thing to do as a defense to worry about Lamar running and worry about the throw behind them. I love any time you get Lamar Jackson rolling out on the goal line. And Lamar Jackson is still getting better. Every time I watch Lamar, I go, yeah, that's better than the last time I saw him. So that is really, really important. Anybody who's hard on Lamar, He's growing. He's a young quarterback who's still learning and still getting better. We forget that Lamar Jackson, how many, Tom Brady is, got, he's in his 20th year in the NFL, I believe. Think of how much more experience a quarterback like Big Ben, Tom Brady, Drew Brees has on a young guy like Lamar Jackson. And forget, like, forget um, years in the NFL. 
how many more years they've played the quarterback position, period. There are things that Tom Brady never second guesses, never worries about because he's done it for so long. Lamar Jackson is still a young, developing quarterback. I've got no problem with Lamar. And uh, I know I love that he was in week three against the Kansas City Chiefs. One of my big criticisms was that I was really you know, baffled why Lamar Jackson wasn't extending plays and using his legs to keep plays alive. If there's nobody open and there's no pressure on you, don't get rid of the ball. Hang out of the ball, get to the perimeter, keep the play alive. And against Pittsburgh, that's exactly what Lamar Jackson did. I went, yes, that's awesome. That's a big deal. And, you know, I think he did a ton of good stuff against Pittsburgh. But the negative plays, the negative plays are starting to hold Lamar Jackson back. At least they still are holding Lamar Jackson back. There are times where it looks like he is second-guessing himself. And that's why I say that he's still finding his identity as a quarterback. Russell Wilson, the Seattle Seahawks quarterback, has no, he knows exactly who he is as a quarterback. There's no question when he runs, he knows what he's doing. He's not worried, he's not second-guessing anything. Russell Wilson is very confident in his identity as a quarterback. He runs, he slides, he avoids getting hit. There's no questions, there's no second thought. I think Lamar Jackson has a ton of noise in his head where he's got all this pressure. When he entered the league, people said he's not very good at throwing the ball. I was one of those people. And I think Lamar hears those voices and is eager to show, no, I'm not just a runner. Lamar wants to show the world I'm a thrower. I can win with my arm. And I, I, I totally agree. In fact, I watched Lamar go, he's a way better passer today than he even was last year. He's getting way, way better. His mechanics look better. He's working hard on everything. So I understand why Lamar is so eager to prove his, his, you know, his improvement as a thrower. However, don't hesitate to run the football if you're Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson is one of the, if not the, best athlete in the entire league. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Lamar Jackson has a tool in his toolbox that a guy like Peyton Manning never had. Peyton Manning was really a physical liability. You, I, there's that one humorous example of Peyton Manning running for a touchdown where he fakes the run and boots left, and it looks like the dude is walking to the end zone. He's sprinting his hardest. You're like, that's all you got, old man? That's terrible. That was all. Peyton Manning was never a threat to run the football. Because Lamar Jackson has that, he has what Peyton Manning had, and more in theory, like potential. So Lamar Jackson should never second guess or shy away from running the football. But unfortunately, I think he is. He's starting to second guess everything. And, you know, he's, I think he's eager to prove himself as a thrower. And I understand that. But it's hurting him that he's still finding his identity as a quarterback. Now, the second interception Lamar Jackson threw on Sunday... I, I want to talk about the first because the second one was just kind of a it was a bad decision. A defender was waiting for the ball. Lamar's throw, there's not really any nuance there. It's just a bad decision and a throw that should never be made. But the first interception Lamar Jackson threw is one I want to talk through because there's subtle nuance that I think needs to be learned here, especially if you're a young quarterback listening. This is huge. It was a stop route against zone coverage, meaning that you know in this situation, a receiver, as they come to a stop, they should never be sitting in the window waiting for the football. And Lamar was a bit late. I mean, the ball should be thrown as the receiver breaks down at the top of their drop, at the top of their, their route, as they, as they set on the window, as they break down to stop, Lamar needs to throw the ball here. And because he was late, 
by the time Lamar threw the ball, Steelers linebacker Robert Spillane was sitting waiting for the throw. He undercut the pass. Bam. Pick six for the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's a touchdown for Pittsburgh. And actually, I want to give a shout-out to the Steelers linebacker Robert Spillane. That's awesome. He had a pick six. He had a fumble recovery. Robert Spillane had 11 tackles on the day. One tackle for loss. Two passes defended. Robert Spillane killed it on Saturday. That's a name I'd never really known about. Robert Spillane, well done, you fine sir. That's a really good performance as a linebacker. Now, look, this game literally came down to the final seconds. It came down to the final throw. Lamar Jackson threw a final pass to the end zone. And I think Big Ben is better than people realize. Big Ben had a really great throw to Chase Claypool for a touchdown. But the Steelers' offense really, really struggled early on in this game. And the Ravens had four turnovers, and they only lost by four points. That's rare. It's rare you get Lamar Jackson to turn over the ball a former MVP to turn over the ball four times in an NFL game. So four weeks from now, you may not know, on in week 12 of the NFL season, we're getting a rematch of this game. Steelers at, excuse me, Ravens, Baltimore, in Pittsburgh playing against the Steelers. Ravens at Steelers. And it's anyone's game in my opinion. I'm really curious to see what happens. I don't know who's going to win. But what I'm excited to watch is whether or not Every time I watch Lamar Jackson, he gets better and makes improvements. Can Lamar Jackson clean up his game in the month leading up to this game and clean some stuff up, play better, and win in Week 12 against the Pittsburgh Steelers? That's what I want to watch. I'm excited for the rematch between the Ravens and the Steelers a month from now. All right, I want to talk about Ohio State's quarterback, Justin Fields. So, Ohio State's quarterback, Justin Fields, has been truly amazing to start this year of the college football season. I think a lot of people don't even actually realize how much better he's gotten. They don't understand. There's a difference between a good college quarterback and an NFL-ready quarterback. And a lot of people will yell, oh, yeah, we all knew he's good. He had great statistics. We saw it. Come on. But a lot of you don't understand why he's so much better today than he was last year. Most people measure whether or not a quarterback is good based on their statistics, how much they're winning, things that I think honestly don't have to do with being a great NFL quarterback when it comes to, I guess what I'm saying here is that last year and again this year, Justin Fields has had really impressive numbers. The stats are great. They're winning. They're going to dominate. But good stats in college do not mean that you're going to be a great NFL quarterback. I would point to Anthony Gordon last year. Anthony Gordon, the quarterback at Washington State. Oh my gosh. I got nothing but hate and anger and vitriol when I said, look, he's a good college quarterback. He's got good numbers. He's got good highlights. But people were really mad at me when I said, Anthony Gordon's not going to be a high-level NFL quarterback. He's He's definitely not a franchise quarterback in the NFL. And fans were yelling at me, you're wrong, you're crazy, you're being mean. And I said, no, I'm not. And then he went undrafted, and I went, see, told you so. And that's a story that I rinse and repeat all the time with a guy like Luke Falk at Washington State. Or I also think of Will Greer from West Virginia. People were talking about Will Greer is the next franchise quarterback in the NFL. He's the third-string quarterback of the Carolina Panthers. I said he's an NFL quarterback. He's not a franchise quarterback, and there's a big difference there. 
And I think that there is becoming a there's a miscommunication happening between me and people who are asking a different question about quarterbacks. The question other people have been asking is whether or not a guy is a good college quarterback. Every name I've said in today's in this video, in this topic, Justin Fields, Will Greer, Luke Falk, Anthony Gordon, everybody I just said, they're all good college quarterbacks. But Justin Fields has elevated himself from being a good college quarterback to a guy that I think might be the best NFL prospect in all of college football. Being an NFL prospect is very different from being a good college quarterback. Last year, Justin Fields was throwing to people that were wide open. This year, Justin Fields is throwing people open. He's been so accurate and so precise that it doesn't matter whether his receivers are wide open or not. He will literally throw them open. He's making perfect throws with perfect ball locations over and over and over again. A beautiful back shoulder throw against Penn State for a touchdown down the right sideline. That's a high-level NFL throw. I mean, look at the game against Penn State Justin Fields just had. He really didn't run the ball. I think he, had like, I think he actually had negative six rushing yards the entire day. Justin Fields didn't need to run to win. He's winning with his arm, and that's a huge, huge deal. He's moving well in the pocket. He's been very patient. He's recognizing coverages. One thing that, you know, Justin Fields has done really well in the first two weeks. Justin Fields hasn't gotten bored with success. It's easy to get greedy and want to have the big play and do big stuff. And he's not. He's like, hey, if it's not there, I'll take the check down. He's very comfortable being patient, which is rare and hard to find. And as a thrower, Justin Fields has really, really refined his mechanics. There's more energy behind the ball when he drives it downfield. I love everything I've seen so far from Justin Fields. His ball location along the sidelines has been phenomenal. He's mastered Ohio State's offense. His timing is great. His anticipation is great. And I think people go, yeah, he's got good statistics. He's good. I don't care about his stats. I don't care what he does. I care how he does it. And I just don't think people quite understand how much better Justin Fields has gotten. Yeah, the stats say he's just as good as he was last year. He's he's doing great. But he's now a way more complete quarterback in college football. And honestly, this is a maybe a controversial statement. I don't know. If Justin Fields keeps doing what he's doing, I think he might actually overtake Trevor Lawrence as the number one pick in the NFL draft. He's that he's been that good. And when you look at what Justin Fields is capable of doing compared to Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields is a way, way better athlete. Like he's he can run like a running back. Oh yeah, by the way, he's throwing like the top pick in the NFL draft. He's got an incredible arm now. Um, and I, I think Justin Fields, his workout that has turned him into maybe the best quarterback prospect in the entire country. And so it's only two games. He's been amazing. We'll see if he can keep it up. But I'm telling you, Justin Fields is really, really good. And then he got better. He, he's gotten even better. I think he's elevated himself. And I, I would be totally fine with an NFL team if he keeps playing the way he's played in week one and week two against Nebraska and Penn State. I would have no problem with, and I would actually lean towards picking Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence with the number one overall pick. So I think Justin Fields has a physical capability and the skill set to elevate an NFL team. And I, if I'm the Jaguars, if I am 
I mean, if, if I'm a Jet, like the Jets are awful. They need help. They need a guy who can make plays with all kinds of ways. Dustin Fields is physically capable of elevating a team like the New York Jets. He might, in fact, end up being the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. I want to give a shout-out real quick to Jahan Dotson. He's a Penn State receiver. He had eight catches, 144 yards, and three touchdowns against Ohio State. He had this catch maybe the best of the year so far at any level of football. Jahan Dotson running down the left sideline, puts his arm up, just plucks the ball out of the air, grabs it for a touchdown. I went, oh my. That is an unbelievable, really, really high-level catch for a touchdown. Jahan Dotson is a name, a receiver at Penn State. Pay attention to him. He's a big name I'd never really known about until that game against Ohio State. I went, this guy's an NFL receiver. So Jahan Dotson, pay attention to that name. You know, File it away in your memory banks. Keep it there because it might come up later. Now, Clemson beat Boston College on Saturday. They were losing at halftime, by the way. Clemson was losing to Boston College 28-13 to at halftime, and they ended up winning the game 34-28. to Boston College did not score in the second half. Now, I'm going to do my very best not to butcher this name. I think I figured out how to say it. DJ Uyunglele. Uyunglele. DJ Uyunglele. Think, I think I got it right. Dude, I'm just going to call him DJ. He was phenomenal against Boston College. Kind of as I predicted, Trevor Lawrence got hurt, and I went, what? I think they'll be okay. I mean, they have a really good – they have a five-star quarterback behind Trevor Lawrence. They got a really good roster, and I – DJ was great. They won, had a really cool comeback. They rallied behind the freshman, and it looks like DJ is going to have to play again against Notre Dame this Saturday, and I have full confidence – in him again. I, I believe in Clemson. I believe in TJ uh, Uyunglele. And my only concern is that maybe, I don't know if Clemson's defense came out a little flat against uh, Boston College, but in the first half, they kept losing jump balls and throws vertically. Uh, they did clean things up in the second half, but I have a little bit of concern about Clemson's defense. But I got to say, T- DJ, phenomenal on Saturday. And uh, I'm confident in Clemson. They're going to be just okay. Just fine, I guess, without Trevor Lawrence. And Trevor Lawrence, he's out with COVID. I think there's, a, I think only one more game. He's going to miss the Notre Dame game then come back. But uh, I am totally confident that Clemson's going to survive their ordeal without Trevor Lawrence and be just fine. And that's what I thought was going to happen. But it looks like they, you know, they beat Boston College. They got to beat Notre Dame on Saturday. And uh, they'll be okay. Now, I also want to say, I think that even if, even if Clemson loses to Notre Dame, like a close game, they still are going to make it into the college football playoff, in my opinion. They they can lose one game and still win the ACC and say, look, we, we lost a game without our starting quarterback. Uh, so I have, I have full confidence in Clemson, but I don't think it's even going to come to that. I think you're going to beat Notre Dame on Saturday, and that's what I'm really, really excited to watch this coming weekend. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return... We'll talk about the Raiders and the Browns. We'll talk about the Buccaneers and the Giants. Uh, Daniel Jones, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on from him. There's a game in the Pac-12 that I think nobody's really talking about. It's maybe the best game of the weekend next weekend, and it's just completely flying under the radar. We'll do some NFL news. We'll talk about the uh, NFL trade deadline. We'll end the show with a Formula One race and talking about 
I watched The Mandalorian. I'll share that with you at the very end of the show. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. I hope you're doing well. Um, I want to talk about the Raiders. On Sunday, the Raiders beat the Browns 16-6. to The Browns are 5-3. The Raiders are 4-3. And, and I was really, really impressed with the Las Vegas Raiders in this game. They're still not at full strength on their offensive line. They really haven't been all year. They're still missing their left guard, Richie Incognito, and the right tackle, Trent Brown. The right tackle, Trent Brown, was supposed to play in this game. And then he had a bad IV put into his arm, which got air into his bloodstream and missed the game. Kind of crazy. He had to go to the hospital. But in spite of that, you know, they have this thing in uh, Vegas. They talk about their Fab Five, these five offensive linemen that is their best lineup. And they really haven't had them together all year. And in spite of missing two of their Fab Five, the Raiders dominated up front in this game. There were two drives in the second half where they were just almost nine minutes. They had one for eight minutes and 54 seconds and another drive that was eight minutes and 49, uh, 47 seconds. Excuse me. And the eight-minute, 47-second drive was a 13-play drive where the Raiders ran the ball 11 times. They were pounding the ball up front. They were dominating. They are moving the ball very, very well. Josh Jacobs had 128 yards rushing. The team as a whole had 208 yards rushing. And, you know, there are two teams now, in my opinion, that were once bad that are now once again good. The Miami Dolphins were a bad team that has gotten better and is now good. And the Las Vegas Raiders, the Raiders organization, has completely turned around, in my opinion. And I'm sold. I buy in. I go, this is really, really good football they're playing. I buy into the Raiders. Derek Carr, their quarterback, has been very good. I thought he got robbed in this game. Should have had two touchdowns. There was a play where I thought pretty obviously Henry Ruggs got two feet in bounds. There was like a blade of grass between Henry Ruggs' foot and the out-of-bounds line, and they called it out-of-bounds. You said it, the ruling on the play standed, uh, stands, no touchdown. I went, Derek Carr should have had two touchdowns in this game. And three times this year, I don't know if eye-poppingly is a word, but three times this year, Derek Carr has been eye-poppingly good. He grabbed my attention and went, wow. That's a very good football game played by this quarterback. And, I mean, that's the Saints game. They beat the Saints in Vegas. They beat the Chiefs. It was a big win. I talked about it. I loved that game to watch. And then now this Browns game, Derek Carr is getting so – he's really efficient. I'm really impressed with Derek Carr's decision-making. He's getting better and better in this offense with John Gruden. And uh, not only is the quarterback good, the Raiders' defense is getting way better, too. They're making a ton of progress. And so I look at the Raiders, and I'm actually going to raise my expectations for Derek Carr and the Raiders moving forward. The Raiders live and die by Derek Carr. He has to play efficient. Uh, And when he plays well, they win. And, And when he doesn't, they don't. It's kind of that simple. And so I really hope that Derek Carr doesn't punish me for betting on him. But And betting, I'm meaning like I, I'm going to start saying, you know, my predictions, I'm going to say the Raiders are going to win this game and I'm going to start really having more faith on the Raiders moving forward. Before the year started, I predicted the Raiders to go 7-9. and nine. And I actually want to upgrade my prediction. They're 4-3 and three right now. I think they're going to finish the year 6-3 and three and end up being 10-6 and six when the year is all over. That's a three-point swing. Based on what I've seen with the Raiders, I think they're three. Uh, excuse me, I think they're three wins better. The three win, win swing, and I think the Raiders are three wins better 
than I thought they were going into this year. So the Raiders' final nine games are this. They play the Chargers, the Broncos, the Chiefs, the Falcons, the Jets, the Colts, the Chargers, the Dolphins, and the Broncos. That's a stretch where I believe the Raiders can go 6-3 and three in the next nine games and finish the year at 10-6. and six. Now the Browns, they lost this game. Uh, and I would not, I, in spite of the fact, you look at like, I remember, you know, initially looking at this game, I saw Baker was 12 for 25 passing, and I went, well, that's pretty like, meh. And I would have figured, you know, the problem in this game was Baker Mayfield. And that's why you don't look at a box score. A box score never properly tells you the story of a game. I would not blame this loss for the Browns on their quarterback, Baker Mayfield, at all. Here's what went wrong for the Cleveland Browns on Sunday. They missed a field goal. Jarvis Landry dropped a touchdown down the left sideline. It's a great ball by Baker Mayfield, by the way. The Browns had, I mean, just a number of drops. They had a third and eight at the edge of field goal range dropped by David Njoku. Miles Garrett got hurt. Harrison Bryant had a fumble. A lot of things went wrong. The fumble, the drops, the missed field goal, Miles Garrett. And none of that, by the way, is Baker Mayfield's fault. I think maybe the only thing you could say is that if you really wanted to nitpick and find a reason to be mad at Baker Mayfield, you could and say, well, maybe since everybody around Baker Mayfield played poorly, maybe Baker Mayfield doesn't do a very good job elevating and rallying the people around him. And I guess if you wanted to say that, that's okay, question mark. I mean, if you want to be that guy and you just hate Baker Mayfield, go ahead, hate Baker Mayfield. Now, I want to briefly mention Miles Garrett. He got hurt in this game, hurt his knee. Uh, the the next week the Browns have a bye week. Miles Garrett is expected to be back two weeks from now uh, in Week Ten against Houston. But I want to repeat: do not blame Baker Mayfield for this loss. Now I am I will say developing I am developing a concern with Baker Mayfield. Even though I don't think he is the reason they lost this game on Sunday, I think Baker Mayfield does have some Philip Rivers in him, where he's prone to making emotional mistakes, especially on third down and in the red zone. Baker makes bad throws when he wants first downs or he wants touchdowns, not because they're good throws or good decisions, but because he wants it. That's an emotional decision. I've said that exactly before about Phillip Rivers. He had two more dangerous throws on Sunday. Uh, you know, on third and 12, he had a throw over the middle that was just a bad decision. It wasn't there. He's forcing it. And I'm starting to pick up on a trend. There was another throw uh, later uh, in the game into the end zone. It's another forced throw because he wants it, not because it's open or because it's there. And so I am curious to see how Baker Mayfield finishes the season. But the Browns, you know, the reason why they lost on Sunday was not because of Baker Mayfield. The Browns got to play better around Baker Mayfield. I All year I've been saying the Browns is like this high-performance sports car that needs a driver to just keep it on the road. And guess what? On Sunday, the sports car broke down. It wasn't the driver's fault. The sports car didn't work very well. The Browns didn't make plays around Baker Mayfield. That's not his fault. Now, I'm excited to see how Baker Mayfield does the rest of the year. I'm curious. I want to find out. Because the Browns need Baker Mayfield to play well in order to win, as pretty much every team in the NFL needs their quarterback to play well in order to win. But I don't know. I, I think that this is a game that Baker Mayfield might get blamed for that just simply is not his fault, even a little bit. Now, on Monday Night Football, 
On Monday Night Football, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat the New York Giants 25-23. to The Bucs are now 6-2. and The Giants are now 1-7. and And the Bucs, Buccaneers actually had to make a comeback to win this game. Kind of surprising. The Giants actually led 17-15 to going into the fourth quarter. In fact, there was a moment where the Giants had the lead and the ball. Now, their quarterback had a bad turnover and cost them the game, in my opinion. But we'll talk about that in a minute. First, I got to say that it felt like a perfect storm that led to Tampa Bay struggling a little bit in this game. You had the Buccaneers on a high note. They'd won two games in a row going into Sunday or going into Monday. Uh, they were playing a coach, Joe Judge, who knew Tom Brady in New England and kind of had some familiarity with Tom Brady's habits on offense. Remember, Joe Judge, the former Patriots assistant. The Buccaneers are dealing with injuries. Their receiver, Chris Godwin, is out. Tom Brady was literally throwing passes to guys named Tanner Hudson and Jaden Mickens, guys I'd never heard of and aren't really high-level you know, receivers in the NFL. Once a tight end, actually. And you know we're also seeing Tom Brady is still learning how to work with Mike Evans. I don't think it's a—I think the, the problem is style a little bit, where Tom Brady has always been led by precision as a quarterback. And Mike Evans, you know, by default, is a— imprecise player where sometimes you just say my guy's better and throw a jump ball to Mike Evans and Tom Brady has never been that guy he always relies on controlling everything he can control to make sure he wins Tom Brady's never been a guy that throws up 50-50 balls so he's still getting comfortable with that in my opinion um, and it's it's definitely learning curve for Tom Brady to say I gotta trust you're gonna make a play and kind of release control a little bit it's a it sounds like a weird thing but it's really a control thing where Tom Brady would rather throw a perfect pass to make his receiver catch it than throw a 50-50 ball and trust that his guy is going to catch it. But in this case, with Mike Evans, throw the 50-50 ball because that's not actually a 50-50 ball. That's a Mike Evans is going to hold it in 90% of the time because Mike Evans is a physical beast and a really, really good jump ball receiver. But Tom Brady's still figuring that out and getting comfortable with how to work with Mike Evans. Now, this game made me more confident in the Giants head coach, Joe Judge. Now, the Giants quarterback, Daniel Jones, was bad. He was the problem in this game. And yet the Giants still almost won, which is kind of surprising and impressive. And it seems like Joe Judge is working. Like his his approach, his leadership style. I was really, really impressed with the Giants defense on Monday where they played very well. They looked well coached. They had guys in the right spots, making plays, knocking the balls out of receivers' hands. They looked disciplined. And to me, everything I just said, that's the mark of a well-coached football team. So that's a testament to Joe Judge. It's going well. Now, the Giants had this awesome stop on third and three where I, I really loved it. They ran their defensive end out into coverage. He was on the line of scrimmage. He backed way off, disguised the coverage. They took away Tom Brady's first option to Mike Evans. It's a great design. It's great execution. It threw Tom Brady off, caused an incomplete pass. Third and three, you get a stop. Bam. That's a really unique, cool play design on defense to get a stop. I love that. Again, I believe in Joe Judge. This is some of his work. That, that's awesome to me. Now, for me, here was the – this game on Monday was actually the low point with the Giants' young quarterback, Daniel Jones. I have tried to be patient. I think I've been more patient than – 95% of other people because I wanted to take my time. 
I wanted to make sure I gave Daniel Jones every single opportunity before I pulled the trigger and bailed on the guy. But, but I've lost all confidence in Daniel Jones. I just have no faith that he's going to work in the NFL. And unfortunately, Daniel Jones has given me way too many reasons to doubt him. I've been trying, I've been almost even become an apologist for Daniel Jones, where I keep saying like, oh, let's see, let's see, let's see. And that's because Daniel Jones is a mixed bag. I mean, occasionally, there are good plays. Remember two weeks ago in the Eagles game, Evan Ingram had two costly drops down the stretch in that game. And, you know, I said that loss wasn't Daniel Jones' fault. I'm like, oh, like, hey, this is on Evan Ingram. He's got to make those catches. But here's why I'm out on Daniel Jones. He's just okay. Nobody wants a just okay quarterback. And the harsh reality is that it's only a matter of time. Whether it's, as soon as the Giants get an opportunity, basically, I think, whether it's in the draft or in a free agent move, as soon as the Giants get the opportunity, they are going to replace Daniel Jones, their young quarterback. He looks really, really limited throwing the ball downfield. He had so many missed opportunities throwing vertically against the Buccaneers. He had a third and three where he had Sterling Shepard wide open. Totally missed it. Deep, inaccurate throw. Missed a guy wide open down the sideline. And on a second and eight, he threw a bad interception where it's a bad pick, but also on the left, down the left sideline, he had Darius Slayton wide open and didn't even recognize it. That's awful. That can't happen. And, th- and I say that that can't happen. I say that way too much about Daniel Jones. There was a, the game came down to a two-point conversion. Remember, the, the Buccaneers won 25-23. The Giants, they get this two-point conversion. It's a tie game, 30 seconds left. Daniel Jones caught the snap, and for some reason that I will never understand, he hesitated. I think it's because the receiver wasn't out of his break yet. He wanted to wait till it was more wide open. But the problem is, in the NFL, you have to have anticipation. You can't wait till stuff is open. You throw it so it's open. You throw it open. And for some reason, Daniel Jones catches the snap, hesitates, shuffles his feet on the speed out, and missed the throw late and inside. And what should have been a tie game with 30 seconds left instead was a game where the Buccaneers won because Daniel Jones missed a crucial throw at the end. He had a really bad interception late where he was getting sacked, and he tried to throw the ball as he was getting pulled to the ground up for grabs. And I really felt like I could hear New Yorkers in their living room yelling, Going like, what are you doing? Throw the ball away with some kind of, I, and I imagine I can't do a New York accent, but I imagine like, what are you doing? Like just so, I, look again, terrible, can't do a New York accent, but I imagine they're just yelling into their TV, what are you doing? Why? Like just so frustrated, so angry, uh, and they have total reason for that. I mean, that's a horrible interception that should not happen. Now, I, I've had compassion for Daniel Jones, and I still do. I always, I hate watching a young quarterback fail. I really have a heart for guys in the NFL. Uh, and I have compassion for Daniel Jones. I look at his situation and I go, there's no Saquon Barkley, Saquon Torres ACL. The team around him isn't very good. It's the first year of the new offense. You know, also it's COVID and there's a bunch of crazy stuff going on. It was a really tough offseason. But unfortunately, everything I just said is an excuse, and I don't have patience for those excuses anymore. Because I realized, like, yeah, I'm saying, hey, it's, you know, first year in a new system, and bad team around him, and this and that. And then I realized that Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert are also 
young rookie quarterbacks and brand new offenses with teams that aren't very good. And Joe Burrow has already nearly mastered his offense. And the problem isn't that Daniel Jones is always awful. The problem is that he's never great. How many times have you watched the Justin Herbert game this year and gone, oh my gosh, that's an amazing throw. That's an amazing run. That's a huge, gigantic ball. That's amazing. Or you watch Joe Burrow and you go, that's a perfect throw. That's a great read. I, I have had way more of those moments for Dan, for Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow than I ever had in the entire career of Daniel Jones. And Daniel Jones is in his second year in the NFL. That's horrible. That can't happen. The best game of Daniel Jones' career was with either was last year or either his first game against the Buccaneers where he had that crazy win uh, at the game-winning touchdown or Week 16 against the terrible Washington team where Daniel Jones had five touchdowns. So there are two moments in Daniel Jones' entire career where I went, oh, wow. But that's it. And most of Daniel Jones' career has been going, uh, maybe he'll get better. So I, I'm, I'm tired of waiting. I really, why, why, why should we wait? We've seen what can happen with a rookie quarterback who's really talented. Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, that's the comparison. And I realized, like, I'm making excuses for Daniel Jones that don't add up because Justin Herbert, it wasn't a problem learning a new offense. Joe Burrow, it wasn't a problem learning a new offense. So therefore, the problem has to be Daniel Jones. And Daniel Jones' problems are adding up. Turnovers are really bad. He's got no pocket awareness. He keeps missing throws. He looks very limited throwing downfield. And again, the problem is that Daniel Jones is just okay. He's not awful. He's just okay. And a great quarterback is obvious. Again, those two examples, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow. It's obvious. They're great quarterbacks. And it's become disappointingly obvious that Daniel Jones is not great. So I'm out. I'm ready to replace Daniel Jones. I'm ready to move on. Um, I, I just, I, I, it's disappointing to say that. I hate bailing on a young quarterback. But I've reached the end of my line, and I'm, I'm done. I'm no longer, I don't have any more faith in Daniel Jones. It's not going to work. Uh, he's getting shown up by other quarterbacks around him. And uh, I just, like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done waiting for him to succeed. And I think it's time to move on. Now, it's also worth noting, on Monday Night Football, I loved the uniforms they wore. The Giants had this all-white uniform with, was it uh, blue numbers and a red outline? It reminded me of the Bill Parcells era, that Bill Parcells era where you watch like a football life with Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick and those old Giants teams with the all-white. It looks so cool to me. And then the Buccaneers have these red jerseys with, I had to look up the color of the pants. The color of the pants was pewter. I I loved it. I loved both of them. The Giants uniforms, the the Buccaneers uniforms. See, there I am, almost saying Patriots. Any team that's associated with Tom Brady, I want to call them the, the Patriots, and they never are. It's just hard for me to still change my frame of mind around that. It's you know we're I'm only eight weeks in. Give me till the end of the year, then I'll finally figure it out. Maybe next year I'll finally I'll stop saying Patriots when I refer to Tom Brady. Um, but yeah, I thought the the uniforms were good. I thought Tom Brady needs to keep getting work in with. Uh, Mike Evans, but again, like they had to come back. It was a win. I thought the defense was good for the Giants. I really like Joe Judge, what he did. I think it's working. I've decided that the problem in New York is Daniel Jones, and I'm, I'm tired of waiting. I've run out of patience. Uh, I, he's just okay, and he's never going to be great, and you want a great quarterback in the NFL. You don't want just okay. Nobody should settle for that, so I, I am totally out on the Giants' young quarterback, Daniel 
Jones. Okay, uh, the opening weekend of the Pac-12 has arrived, and there are three quarterbacks I'm really, really excited to watch. There's a game that I think nobody is talking about enough. There's a game in the Pac-12 that has the two best NFL quarterback prospects in the entire conference. They're playing each other on Saturday of Arizona State at USC. It's an early morning game, 9 a.m. Pacific time, which is really brutal if you're a you're a college football player waking up at 9 a.m. to play a game. That's that's absurd. That's I mean, really, you're getting up at 6 a.m. I, I get you do 6 a.m. lifts. That's really tough still. And I think they Pac-12 did that to try to get on the they want to be on TV at noon on the East Coast to try to get on the big noon kickoff. I think for Fox Sports, I believe. Uh, but what we're going to see in this game is Jaden Daniels, Arizona State's quarterback, against USC and their quarterback Keaton Slovis. I love Jaden Daniels; he's really physically gifted. But I strongly believe that Keaton Slovis is the best quarterback in the Pac-12. I'm a big fan of Keaton Slovis. He seems like a great guy. And he does so many things well. He's very accurate. He moves well in the pocket. He's got a ton of poise. Like, big moments seem to have very little impact on Keaton Slovis. He's just confident. And he's comfortable in who he is. And that's that's hard to find in a young quarterback. And, uh, again, seems like a great dude. Easy to root for as a human being. Uh, now, I am curious. You know, I find myself, first of all, I find myself rooting for Keaton Slovis. I wonder if... He's already in the habit of going to bed early this week. It's a weird thing to talk about, but a 9 a.m. game is rare and and hard to. It's kind of an obstacle, and so I. It's probably fine. You know, college football players have early morning 6 a.m. lifts, so they're probably used to getting up early at this point. But I am curious if having a 9 a.m. game has any kind of impact. And Keaton, you know, I would advise you make sure you're going to bed at like start tonight. Tonight, today's Wednesday. Wednesday night. Go to bed early and start the habit of going to bed early. It probably you're probably already on it. You probably have a plan, but I, I'm curious to see if anybody has any kind of problems on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. playing a football game when you I, it's just an early time slot to play a football game. Now there's another quarterback he cannot wait to watch, Washington State quarterback Jaden Delora. He's a true freshman from St. Louis High School in Hawaii, and basically Jaden Delora followed Nick Rolovich, the coach from, you know, Nick Rolovich was the head coach of Hawaii. Jaden Delora was committed to go there. Oh, hey, guess what? Nick Rolovich is going to Washington State. Jaden Delora went right along with him. He's a true freshman quarterback. It's kind of interesting. I really like it. First of all, I always root for guys from Hawaii. I am very impartial. I really have a heart for that area. And I when I see guys from Hawaii succeed, it makes me very happy. And uh, Washington State, is not expected to be very good this year. Their first game is against Oregon State. So I actually love, I think if you're going to be bad, one of the best things you can do is play a true freshman quarterback. Build around that young guy. You're beginning a program with a new coach. Build around Jaden Delora. I think that's really cool. The program's going to build up around him. And I, I, I actually have confidence. I, I don't know if, I have no idea how good Jaden's going to be week one. Remember, he's 18 years old. He's a true freshman but I'm excited for his future, and I'm really excited to see. I'm, I'm interested to see how he does on Saturday against Oregon State. All right, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll do some NFL news. We'll talk about the NFL trade deadline, do a recap of that. Talk about the Emola Grand Prix. Uh, I'm also going to share my thoughts on Dominica and the Mandalorian. So if you know what I'm talking about, I talked about it in the last Ask Zach episode 300. So uh, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. That stuff's coming up. 
I will be right back. All right, we are back. I want to just jump into some NFL news. A lot of 49er struggles are going on. If you don't know, Kendrick Bourne tested positive for COVID. That led to the 49ers facility being shut down. Jimmy Garoppolo, by the way, is out indefinitely with a high ankle sprain, their quarterback. George Kittle, their tight end, is reportedly out eight weeks uh, with a foot fracture. He says two weeks. The Kyle Shanahan, the head coach of the 49ers, Kyle Shanahan, says that's nonsense, and they're going to listen to doctors. So interesting stuff there. Uh, The Packers running back A.J. Dillon apparently got COVID. He's been put on the COVID reserve list. And really, it's interesting. I kind of thought that this Packers 49ers game, given the 49ers facility being shut down, A.J. Dillon getting COVID, you would think like, oh, they're going to just move the game from Thursday back to Monday because we've seen that so often this year. And apparently the game is on schedule so far. I'm skeptical. I actually very secretly uh, and guiltily a little bit hope this game gets moved back. I Thursday Night Football is hard for me to cover. I'd rather just get through the games. Uh, if I do, when I cover this game, it'll probably be Friday night anyway. So I, I just have a lot of stuff on my plate. If this game gets canceled, I'll be secretly very happy. Although I don't think it's going to get, you know, I, canceled is the wrong word there. I think moved back from Thursday to Monday or Tuesday. Probably Monday, though. We've seen that most likely and most often this year. John Elway, the Broncos general manager, got COVID. Vaughn Miller, the edge rusher for the Broncos, also says, by the way, that he's going to be back in about a month from his injury. Ravens last ta- a left tackle, Ronnie Staley, is out for the year with an ankle, inj- ankle injury. I'm just glad that you know, um, Ronnie Staley got it paid. He got a big contract literally right before he got hurt. Good for him. I'm very happy. Uh, I'm sad, though, that he's out for the year. I feel bad for him that way. But again, I'm glad he got paid. And finally, the last news item of the day is that Jake Lutton, Lutton or Luton, I'm going to say Lutton. I think that's what I've heard. I, it's funny. I live in Oregon. I, I live... Uh, live in Washington technically, but I live in the Portland metro area, and I still don't know how to say Oregon State's quarterback's name. He's, he's a former, he's a rookie quarterback out of Oregon State. He's expected to be the starting quarterback for the Jaguars on this upcoming Sunday. And uh, yeah, I just, I don't know how to say his last name. I think it's Lutton, and uh, we'll see what happens. I think part of that's because Gardner was hurt with a hand injury. I really want to see, I, I hope that the Jaguars try to run a Wildcat offense with uh, you know, Levi- LaVisca Chenault and uh, uh, James Robinson in the backfield. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'd love to see a wildcat formation of some kind from the Jacksonville Jaguars. I want to recap the trade deadline real quick now. There are one, two, three, four, five, six trades I found noteworthy and worth talking about. I think maybe I'll start with the Seahawks trade. The Bengals traded their defensive end, Carlos Dunlap, to the Seattle Seahawks. I've talked about this before. I talked about it in the Seattle Seahawks topic a couple days ago. It was a technically a trade deadline trade, though. The Bengals got offensive lineman B.J. Finney and a seventh-round pick. Seattle, what they got is Carlos Dunlap, the, the best pass rusher that Cincinnati had. And Seattle's really hoping that Carlos Dunlap can help, can help them make a playoff push and generate pressure. Remember, against the Cardinals, the Seahawks did not have a single sack, and that game was an entire game plus an entire overtime period, and Seattle still did not have a single sack. They need to generate pass rush. That is why they draft, uh, they traded for Carlos Dunlap. 49ers linebacker has been traded to the Saints' Quan Alexander. The Saints get Quan Alexander, and the 49ers get linebacker Kiko Alonso and a fifth-round pick. 
interesting. I think part of it is the 49ers wanted to get rid of Quan Alexander's contract. They kind of um, they feel like they can probably replace him in the draft. And for now, Kiko Alonso's coming back from an ACL injury and uh, is likely going to play the rest of the year for the 49ers. I think this also might be to some degree the 49ers admitting that they don't think they're going to finish the year strong where they, you know, Jimmy G has been hurt. He's out indefinitely. They're lo- they lost George Kittle for eight weeks. They've already had a ton of injuries on top of that. I, the 49ers have been putting together a valiant effort. And again, I think Kyle Shanahan almost deserves coach of the year the way he really has kept this team together and designed really good game plans. But uh, this is a very telling trade by the 49ers. Chargers corner Desmond King has been traded to the Tennessee Titans. Remember, he's also a punt returner. Simple trade. The Chargers get a six-round pick. The Titans get a corner who helps their defense. It's kind of weird. I'm, I'm trying to not hiccup here. I'm trying to. It's kind of weird to me. I, I don't know why. It feels like the Titans just won this trade outright, and I don't really know how the Chargers benefit. Like a six-round pick, really. I guess you get rid of the contract. Just weird to me. He's a veteran. He's not the future of your franchise. But either way, this is a really, really good trade for Tennessee. They got a starting corner for a really, really low price. Cowboys defensive end Everson Griffin has been traded to the Lions. Lions get Everson Griffin, and the Cowboys got an undisclosed draft pick. We don't know what this draft pick is. I would assume it's a lower draft pick, um, but uh, it's, I don't know, it's a weird. Not a very I don't know much about that trade other than, huh. The Giants linebacker Marcus Golden has been traded to the Cardinals. It's actually, uh, he's returning back to the Cardinals. The Giants got a sixth-round pick for the trade. And uh, good for the Cardinals. I, you know, they're, they're trying to improve their defense, get even better. And uh, the Cardinals are doing very well this year. Now, the last trade is probably, in my opinion, the biggest and most important. So uh, we saw the Seahawks trade for Carlos Dunlap make their pass rush better. That's a playoff team getting better. Uh, the Cardinals got a little bit better with Marcus Golden. Here's a trade which a, it's a playoff team, I think, that doesn't need to get better getting even better. The Steelers are 7-0, and and they just traded for Jets linebacker Avery Williamson. I actually predicted this trade because Avery Williamson is a perfect fit for the Steelers' defense, but it's just scary to me. Like The Steelers' defense is really, really good. They just got Lamar Jackson to turn over the ball four times in one game. They shut down the Titans' running game, and they added Avery Williamson and got even better. The Jets in the trade got a fifth-round pick. The Steelers got Avery Williamson and a 2022 seventh-round pick. By the way, that fifth-round pick the Jets got was also a 2022 fifth-round pick. So the Jets get a fifth-round pick. Steelers get a seventh-round pick and Avery Williamson. It's just weird to me. It's not weird to me. It's just an indication the Jets are not trying to win. They are trying to offload contracts, and they're trying to get a high draft pick. That's their goal and their plan. Uh, Apparently, and this should, should have been in the news maybe, the Jets general manager, Joe Douglas, came out and said that Sam Darnold is the future of the Jets. Adam Gase is part of the future of the Jets. I just don't buy it. And if it's true that Adam Gase is part of your future, you're an idiot. Because I don't know how you look at Adam Gase and go, oh, yeah, good stuff is happening. I like that. I approve of this. So I think the Jets are saying what they need to say to keep people happy in their building. But I think the Jets are hoping they get a top pick and a new coach to draft Trevor Lawrence. So... That's honestly, or or maybe Justin Fields. I think Justin Fields might actually be a better pick for the Jets, given that he can elevate a really bad team. So we'll see what happens. Um, But uh, I'm curious to watch the Jets and what they do the rest of this year. Uh, So last night was election night in America. 
And I, I work really hard to keep my political opinions private. I don't think it's appropriate to share politics on a sports podcast. Oh, look, I know why you're here listening to this show. You're here because you want an escape from the real world. That's why I, I The reason why I love sports is it's my escape from the stressors and the problems of the real world. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't think it matters who you vote for to enjoy sports. We're here because sports are a great unifier. And everybody is welcome to listen to my show, and you're all welcome here on Patreon. You're all welcome everywhere. I, I, I welcome everybody from every side of everything, and I, uh, are you a human being that loves sports? Great. Then let's talk about sports. That's what I love, and you, you're welcome here. Uh, now, last night, no matter what side you're on, I think it was a tense night uh, where, you know, honestly, I, I think it's even sad that there are sides in America. We're all Americans at the end of the day, and I think that some of the— like look on Twitter right now. Oh my gosh, we are so divided. It's disappointing to me. It's I just uh, kind of heartbreaking actually. But I, I needed a break from all the anger and vitriol on both sides, and uh, so I watched The Mandalorian. That's a, a Star Wars TV show on Disney Plus. I highly recommend it. If you've never watched The Mandalorian, it's one of my favorite Star Wars stories ever. You know, my favorite Star Wars movie is actually. Well, other than the the original trilogy, it's Rogue One. I think Rogue One is a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Now, this show, The Mandalorian, is lighthearted. It's fun. It feels—I'm only two episodes in. I've finished two episodes. Uh, You know, Baby Yoda is happening. I don't want to say much more than that in case you haven't watched it. But if you've never watched The Mandalorian, the story feels inconsequential. And Star Wars stories, for me— are always these massive galaxy-saving epics, and there's all this drama, and it's really heavy, and we got to save the entire universe, and there's this bad order of people, and I don't really always want or need that. I don't, I don't really need my Star Wars to be about saving the entire galaxy. And, like, it's kind of weird how these incredible, like, this, the, Luke, the Skywalker family repeatedly is always involved. And one of my criticisms of Star Wars in general is like, why is R2-D2 in every single movie? Or C-3PO still around? Like, it never made sense to me. Like, why is this world that's supposed to be a gigantic galaxy feel so small? And so I like that The Mandalorian is just a story about a guy in the Star Wars universe because the star of Star Wars is the universe it's the idea it's the world that they're in the world that was built is so cool and i like the mandalorian because it feels like you're just exploring the world that makes me very very happy i 10 out of 10 i highly recommend the mandalorian especially if you love star wars but the newer movies have really bothered you and you haven't loved them very much mandalorian hits the spot and it captures what i've always loved about star wars is that it's lighthearted, it's fun and it's getting to explore this cool interesting unique world you know my girlfriend Space makes her very scared and stressed out. Like you, my girlfriend and I cannot talk about aliens because it makes her have like an existential crisis and she panics a little bit. And you know that if my girlfriend who hates space stuff is enjoying The Mandalorian, it's just a good story that's interesting. So I highly recommend The Mandalorian. It's very, very good. Now, in the last episode, I got asked about the, I got asked about Dominica on Ask Zach. And I thought, Caleb, I thought you meant the Dominican Republic, and you were referring to the island that has uh, the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Now, I learned about an island I had never known about, Dominica. That's what you meant. And I go, oh, wow, interesting. 
and I, I'll be honest, I had no idea that the Lesser Antilles were even a thing. I just didn't know they existed. Uh, and so Dominica is this beautiful, small volcano or small volcanic island that is looks like a great place for vacation. I don't know that I would live there. It's a little bit too small. It's a little bit too volcanic, but it looks really beautiful. Uh, I think if I lived in the Caribbean, it would be either... I, I guess I could see myself on Dominique in this, uh, uh, Dominica, excuse me, especially if I wasn't doing strong opinion sports. If I was just like going to be a beach bum somewhere, Dominica probably is the place I would go. If I said, like, I'm selling all my possessions and running off to live at the end of the world somewhere, I probably would go to Dominica, actually. Uh, if I lived in the Caribbean and wanted to live like kind of a, a more civilized, what's the word there, the right word there, you know, a more, you know, inter- on the internet, working, doing strong opinion sports, trying to stay up with the world and not selling all my possessions and living uh, in a, you know, being a bartender. If I was trying to do strong opinion sports in the Caribbean somewhere, I probably want to live in St. Kitts. Uh, St. Kitts and Nevis looks really, really interesting and really, really cool. But uh, to me, I think Hawaii is probably the best place in the world that I have access to uh, that's tropical because it's got bigger islands, you know, you know, more square miles, literally. It's got fewer active volcanoes. It's got better internet. But Dominica, I, Caleb, I, I somehow didn't understand your question. And then I went down this rabbit hole of learning about Dominica, and I watched way too many videos and was obsessed with it. So Dominica, interesting island. If you're curious, go look up YouTube videos of Dominica. Interesting, cool culture. Um, I like it. And I just had no idea it even existed. Last topic of the day. We had an F1 race on Sunday. I'm going to call it the Imola Grand Prix. It's got some other name that I can't pronounce, and I'm a stupid American, so I do my best. Uh, this is a the race at Imola, though. It's a narrow track. It's hard to pass. There's a lot of potential for contact, meaning there's a lot of potential for having a yellow flag. And a lot happened in this race. I was actually gearing up for a boring race, and then I started watching. I was like, why would I expect a boring race? It's never boring with F1. Even... You know, there, even if it's moments of no one's passing anybody, for me, I enjoy that because there's always tension. So Mercedes won their seventh straight constructors championship by winning this race. They won. They got first and second. Uh, not a shocker. It's just interesting to me. Like Mercedes has been so, so dominant for years. They are. It's just it's impressive and deserves respect. Uh, and you can say like they, you know, they bought their wins, but you still got to say like. You may buy wins, but it's still an impressive um, investment by Mercedes to say, we value winning this much. We're going to pay this much money to dominate Formula One. Now, I think the best moment of tension in this race was when there's a period where Max Verstappen was stuck behind Valtteri Bottas. Uh, and Bottas had car damage. Apparently, it was a, a piece of a Ferrari car. At least, I don't, some, I don't know what it was. But it was red. Whatever whatever piece of metal was attached to Valtteri Bottas's car was red. I, I want to blame Ferrari because that sounds fun. I don't know if it was, but whatever. Um, and that was, there was a lot of tension there because Lewis Hamilton in first place was just getting away, getting away, getting away. And Bottas had an injured car on a track you can't really pass on. And Max was having a really hard time getting around Valtteri Bottas. And then finally there was a moment where – and I, I literally stood up and I went, Finally! where Max Verstappen got around Valtteri Bottas, and it was really exciting and really cool for a second. And then, like, very shortly afterwards, Max Verstappen hit some debris, and his tires got all mangled, and he got all messed up, and it got to he crashed, basically. And so Max had to DNF. He did not finish. It was very disappointing. And uh, I went, oh, man. It felt like a 
what could have been an amazing, interesting finish was a missed opportunity because of Max Verstappen hitting some, getting a tire puncture, basically, of what it looked like um, because he hit some debris. There were five total did not finishes in DNF results in this race. George Russell's was the most painful. Uh, he was, he crashed during a safety car. There were 10 laps left and George Russell's Williams just veered left into the wall. He was trying to, I don't, he just dropped the car. I don't know what to say about it. He was crushed. He was sad. I don't blame him. Uh, it was really the, the best opportunity, you know, George Russell's ever gotten at points and he blew it. So it was just, I felt bad for him. It was very, very sad. Now these are all the racers that did not finish other than, you know, George Russell didn't. Max Verstappen DNF, Kevin Magnuson, he he spun out and then he like his head was had headaches and he was last and he just ended up pulling out of the race. Uh Pierre Gasly had a terminal engine failure where they knew basically I think the coolant was uh leaking they ran out of coolant and they knew the engine was not going to make it to the entire race and so Pierre Gasly's Alpha Tauri pulled out uh which is too bad. He was in a really good spot when he went out. And uh I I mean I think you have to you can't run your engine till it blows up because then that's a penalty in F1. So Pierre Gasly did not finish. Esteban Ocon DNF'd. Um and then Ferrari is this this team that I find comically bad. They have this really talented driver. Uh, they have two really talented they have Sebastian Vettel, a really talented driver, and then they have Charles Leclerc, a really talented driver. I think Sebastian Vettel at this point is just checked out and doesn't care. Uh where, you know, there was a moment where Ferrari botched one of Sebastian Vettel's pit stops. So badly. Sebastian Vettel, a regular pit stop in F1 is like two, generally two to two and a half to three seconds. Sebastian Vettel's pit stop was 13.1 seconds. They just embarrassing. And it was the front right tire. They couldn't, they couldn't get the, the lug nut to spin on. Just, that's awful. And kind of hilarious. I, I always call Ferrari the Dallas Cowboys of F1. And it's weird how. As the Dallas Cowboys have had a horrible, horrible year this year, so too have Ferrari. And I said that Ferrari was the Dallas Cowboys of F1, like, in August. Like, way before. No, it was the beginning of the year. It was like, when did the F1 season start? Like, April, something like that? I said that months and months before we knew the Dallas Cowboys were bad. And yet somehow their their failures and successes are aligned. And as the Cowboys are terrible, so too is Ferrari. Uh, probably the weirdest moment of the race was lap 51 out of 63, 12 laps left. It was a safety car. And Racing Point decided to have Sergio Perez pit. Nobody else did. Nobody else got a pit stop. Sergio Perez did. I don't really understand the thought. I think maybe they were trying to predict the people behind them would get a pit stop. And they're like, well, we got to be on new tires if they're going to be on new tires. Uh, but Sergio Perez dropped from third, a podium position, to seventh. And that's awful. That's terrible. And it was pointless. And because of that, it actually cost him a podium place, which made no sense to me. So I I just felt bad for Sergio Perez. I don't, I don't, there's no conspiracy there really. Uh, you know, it was a, a Max Verstappen crashed. So that was the the yellow flag. Then George Russell crashed, which extended the yellow flags even longer. But even if George Russell hadn't crashed and there was real racing for most of the end of the race, I don't know that you just can't pass on this track. So I don't know why you would give up positioning and uh, go from seventh to third. You're probably not going to make up four positions to get back to a podium position, no matter what happens. So I just thought that racing point had a really big mistake there. 
And uh, they very much cost their driver, Sergio Perez. Felt bad for Sergio. Now, here are the results of the race. Lewis Hamilton got first. Valtteri Bottas got third. Daniel Ricciardo got, uh, sorry, sorry. Valtteri Bottas got second. Danny Rick, Daniel Ricciardo got third place and a podium position. Very cool for him. His second with Renault. Now, Alex Albin spun himself out. And I did a whole topic about Alex Albin, about how, why I, I think Red Bull's going to drop him. I think they should. Uh, they've given him opportunity after opportunity. Uh, I know there's some tie investment in Red Bull. But Alex Albin's getting shown up by, I mean, Daniel Kriat had a, uh, Kvyat had a better day than, why, first of all, why does Martin Brundle call him Kriat? Like, if you listen to an F1, if you listen to an F1 broadcast, they call him Daniel Kriat instead of Kvyat. I don't know. Am I just stupid? I don't, I don't, do I not know how to say that name right? Because everyone tells me it's Kvyat, but I listen to the F1 broadcast. They say Kriat. And I go, is no one telling them it's, there's no R in that word? I don't understand. Um, now, again, dumb American. I don't really know. Do my best. But I, I think Alex Albin has reached the point where he took himself out of the race, basically. He dropped the car, and he said he got touched. If you watch video, nobody touched Alex Albin. It's in his head. And so I, I think that uh, I think Alex Albin's going to have to lose his seat in Red Bull. And I feel bad for him. I don't feel happy saying that. This is his lifelong dream. It's all he's ever worked for. So it's terrible. But I think Alex Albin's days at Red Bull Racing are going to come to an end and they're over. Especially, here's what's ridiculous. If Alex Albin has a seat next year in F1, but Nico Hulkenberg and Sergio Perez do not, that'd be ridiculous. If Sergio Perez and Nico Hulkenberg, if both of them, maybe one of them won't get a drive, but if they both don't have a drive, no matter what happens to Alex Albin, that's a shame and very, very ridiculous. Sergio Perez has been phenomenal. I went into the year very skeptical, going like, ah, Sergio Perez is good, but like, whatever. No, Sergio Perez has won me over this year. He's a way better driver than I gave him credit for, and he deserves a lot of recognition. He'd better be in F1 next year. If he's not, that's a weird tragedy and a shame. Here are the drivers standing so far this year. Uh, Lewis Hamilton has 282 points. He's most likely to win pretty easily, actually. Valtteri Bottas has 197 points. Max Verstappen is third with 162. Now, the battle for best of the rest, the battle for fourth in F1 is very interesting. You have Daniel Ricciardo with 95 points. Charles Leclerc with 85. Sergio Perez with 82. Lando Norris with 69. And Carlos Sainz with 65. What's going to be interesting is if any of these guys get a podium, because a podium is going to swing them a lot. But Danny Rick is really pulling away. Uh, I don't know that... Charles Leclerc is the closest guy to him. I don't have a lot of confidence that Charles Leclerc is going to get another podium the rest of the year. So we'll see. Crazy stuff happens every week. But uh, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that anybody can challenge Danny Rick at this point, the way he's driving. He looks phenomenal. And it's almost a shame that he's leaving Renault because it looks like Danny Rick finally hit his stride with Renault, and now he's leaving. Uh, by the way, it's a really quiet race for McLaren. Just interesting, quiet. I haven't, McLaren hasn't done much in a couple weeks, and I'm waiting for them... Uh, it's interesting. We'll talk about the standings. So before we get into Renault in a second, let's say this. In the constructors' standings, you have Mercedes already won. They have 479 points. They literally already won F1. In second, you have Red Bull. They have 226 uh, points. That's almost single-handedly all Max Verstappen scoring points for Red Bull. You have Renault with 135 points in third. Renault is third right now. McLaren is fourth with 134 points. This battle between McLaren... Renault, and then Racing Point also was 134 points. 
the battle for third is literally down to one point right now. Renault is in third with 135. McLaren has 134. Racing Point has 134. Uh, honestly, this is a... I hate saying this. I think McLaren has, top to bottom, the most quality drivers. Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz. You know, Renault is very top-heavy. I really like Danny Rick, and Esteban Ocon's okay. Racing Point, I really like Sergio Perez, and Lance Stroll is okay. McLaren, I really... I don't know that I like either of the McLaren drivers as much as I like Daniel Ricciardo and Sergio Perez, but it's really close. They have more quality top to bottom at McLaren than any of the other teams vying for third. You would think McLaren has an opportunity uh, to get third place. I hope they do. I'm actually, I find myself rooting for McLaren because I like Lando Norris. I think it'd be cool for him to be involved in that. Uh, I don't really care, but it's interesting. And the battle for third place right now in F1 is probably the marquee most interesting battle in all of F1 because uh, a lot of other stuff. Like the battle for second, uh, Botas is pulling away. Red Bull has no chance to, you know, Mercedes already won, literally. But no one's going to take second place from Red Bull either. So I don't know, but the battle for third is the best battle in all of F1 and the constructors standings. Who's going to get third place? I don't know. Renault, McLaren, Racing Points all come down to one point, And I cannot wait to see what happens as the year comes to an end. Guys, that is all I have. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, I love you. I got a lot of stuff. I'm going to watch more football um, right after this. So uh, I'm excited. Love you. Have a great day. Bam, we are done.